the development of this sermon began before we had actually nailed down the Advent service of Lessons and Carols, and so like an obedient parish priest, I wrote the sermon on the regular propers for this Sunday in Advent, where we meet our old friend, John, don't sing Jingles Bells to me, the Baptist. So I actually am going to say some things about that, but here's what prompted, one of the things that prompted this sermon. What I'm doing now is something I think teachers of homiletics would suggest that you don't do, but it doesn't matter because I never learned from anybody who taught homiletics anything useful. <laughs> Anyhow, the um, here's what I was thinking. In Vancouver, British Columbia, a, the Diocese of New Westminster just prevailed in a lawsuit against the dissident congregations that wish, wish to withdraw from the diocese and connect up to some other provinces of the Anglican Communion and to remain in their property. And one of them was the largest congregation in Vancouver and perhaps one of the largest congregations in the whole of the Anglican Church of Canada, St. John's Shaughnessy. So St. John's Shaughnessy is a full-tilt boogie, evangelical, no-holds-barred church and it's been around for a long time. And I went to their website, and like we do, they have the sermons there by the clergy, and they've got three or four clergy on the staff. It's a big operation. And uh, so I started to listen to them. And what they do is uh, typical of this particular constituency within Anglicanism. They ignore the, the lectionary and do something known as expository preaching, which means they will let the congregation know that for the next foreseeable future, all the sermons are going to be on the epistle to the Romans. Ay, 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 ay. <coughs> so I started listening to this expository preaching and to the sermons. And I got to thinking about Advent and they are perhaps an absolutely excellent example of a particular approach to Christianity that American Episcopalians have uh, not had to contend with uh, since the Civil War, but after <coughs> 1977, when Eng English evangelicalism came back to the United States and formed the Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. And I labor this, belabor this, because it has to do with some Advent themes that are important. One is repentance, and the other one is God's judgment. And it has a lot to do with how you understand those things and what the differences are. So I'm going to spend some time talking about that today, a little bit, I hope, connected to John the Baptist. But before I do that, there's another thing that I, I thought I'd do, just because I, you know, preachers in the Episcopal Church and other, use the term incarnation. And we use it like you all know what that means, and it's continuously used, and so I, you know. But maybe it might be good once in a while to sort of explain <laughs> what the incarnation is, you know, and how we understand it. Because some have said if there is an Anglican heresy, it's an overweening uh, emphasis 
on the Incarnation. I don't happen to think that is true, but the fact that we hold very important and central to our self-understanding the humanity of Christ, and that by virtue of that, Jesus Christ constitutes the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, the maturing of our emotional, mental, and spiritual states, in such a way as we are now somehow able to appropriate and understand that each one of us has a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. Who you are and what you do in big and small ways is important and is beloved of God. So the incarnation is the idea that God became a human being. So it connects up with St. John Shaughnessy because they have a particular view of why this happened. And I have a different view. <laughs> and a view that is uh, shared by a great many, some very, very important uh, uh, figures in our own tradition. So here's the St. John Shaughnessy view. Of the incarnation is a Latin word, incardo means in the meat, in the flesh. So that's what we mean when we say incarnation, the incarnation of God <clears throat> as a human being. Their view of it is, here's the reason this all had to happen. We had to have God become a human being because he had to die on the cross to save us and from our bad deeds. The things had so become... To, uh, we're, we're at such a miserable pass here with humanity that we had to have God deign to become a human being and as the result of that get arrested and crucified in order for things now to be set right. The belief that God isn't going to vicariously punish you necessarily but he'll do it to himself. So as a description of the nature of God, that makes things a little perverse in my view, don't you think? There may be another way to explain why God became a human being. And one of the best ones I read this week was uh, that the incarnation is the fulfillment of the love of God and his desire to be present among us to live in the midst of humanity and to walk in the garden with us. Because when I was in seminary, I was taught that it is part of the mystery of the Incarnation that God needs the creation that he made and called good. He needs each one of you. And so when we think about that, it's a lot different than saying, well, I better go down there and save these useless uninsurables. <laughs> you know? There's a risk of perhaps sitting too lightly on the fact that uh, a, a confession I must make to you that the longer I've been a parish priest, the absolutely more I'm convinced in the power of human sinfulness. You know? Although I don't think that we give enough credit to perversity as it operates within human beings and in their relational life. And that's an inexplicable thing uh, that occurs, you know, it's why do you tear the wing off the fly? Somebody told me that's like pure science, right? Pure science, when I was in high school, the chemistry professor told us that there was something called pure science. You know, you're just looking into stuff. 
So I ventured that, what is that like, tearing the wing off a fly and see what they do? He said, Brewer, that's not funny. Maybe not. <laughs> but sometimes you wonder. I would uh, prefer to, to move on, the, or to err on the side of God's love and God's desire for intimacy with the creation that he made and called good. So let's say a word about judgment, because John the Baptist is, uh, in the gospel for this Sunday has some things to say about that. In the Middle Ages, uh, some of the medieval theologians referred to God's judgment as his opus alienum, his strange work. And they referred to God's mercy as his opus proprium, his proper work. And the conclusion that was drawn by some not insignificant medieval theologians was that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. It doesn't, in some sense, free human beings from personal responsibility, but it does have something to do about the nature of God unconditionally accepting, loving, and forgiving us. And when you say that, meaning it, and not qualifying about, oh my goodness, what reason we had Jesus here is because he had to die on the cross and get us all back right with God. And then, even then, they're not sure. You know? It's the difference in Christianity, a Christianity that believes that you and I need to be laboring on a daily basis to move us towards holiness and purity as the main way of understanding who we are and what we're supposed to be doing, as opposed to understanding our role in God's plan for the cosmos and cooperating with that divine initiative within history to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. You know, I'm not suggesting any kind of particular social policy with regard to this, but that you and I ought to be concerned about it, and that it is a very godly work and that it has something to do with how we cooperate with God's work in the world. So when you think about the judgment of God, think about uh, the, the judgment of God in terms of cooperating with the divine initiative, and that God's mercy always trumps God's judgment when they collide. You know? <clears throat> I've said over the last couple of weeks, I'm not one of the people who subscribes to the view that there's going to come a time. You know, Advent, we're thinking about the coming of Christ, and some are thinking about the coming of Christ again. And the coming of Christ again, for, for some of them, means a divine ethnic cleansing, and then we get taken somewhere. A new thing, you know. At the rapture, this car will be driverless. Well, you can believe that if you want to. You know, but Episcopalians, or many of us, demur.
with regard to that and have for nearly 500 years. <laughs> so, there it is. Or as my theology professor at Mishota used to say, won't, well, there it is. <laughs> you know? So that's the thing. Now, let me say something about this before I get to repentance. John the Baptist, who comes this week and next week, and is not very uh, agreeable, and he, ha he is uh, very hard with the uh, religious leadership that come out to him to be baptized in today's gospel. He calls them a brood of vipers. And he said, bear, bear repentant, repentant, and bear the fruits of repentance, this change of heart and mind. But he holds no brief for who they are and what they do. When John the Baptist speaks about judgment and speaks about God's, uh, the necessity for repentance, it would have never occurred to him to think about it first as personal and individual. He was speaking as a prophet of the people of God. And that he would have understood that the way in which we shift ourselves off dead center to a place where it is easier for people to be good and more godly is through the common interaction of a people with some species of a common mind or seeking it in the midst of our plural views on these matters. But that the first thing that you must always remember when he says repent and when he says you, that, that God's judgment is going to be here or the winnowing, he's speaking collectively to how uh, people and nations behave and act that produce circumstances, social, economic, spiritual, emotional, mental, that cause disruption and alienation. And that God in Christ has come now to heal that and to make it whole. So it's a corporate understanding of what this means. Since the Protestant Reformation, there is a species of Christianity that focuses, and we all have it now because of the age we live in, we think about this first in terms of I, 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 me, me, me. I'm getting saved. I'm repenting. I'm becoming purer. I'm becoming more righteous. I am doing these things. And when you hear evangelical preachers go on and on about the nature of the culture we live in that is much too individualistic and subjective and everything else, they never cop to the fact that it is their own theological perspective that has produced this. All of this stuff can go right back to Roger Williams and the Rhode Island colony in the United States, who at the end of his life belonged to a church that had one member, him. I'm serious, okay? So when you start down that road, that's the, that's the thing. So we're talking about these values of judgment and repentance, and it would be helpful to understand how you and I are part of a collective whole, seeking to know the truth and finding out the way to proceed together. But that's why community life, why the Eucharist, why the whole idea of thanksgiving together has such powerful meaning for Episcopalians. In the New Testament, there are two words that are used for repentance. The one that preachers talk about the most uh, and the one used most frequently is the word metanoia, which means to turn around and look at things differently or to change direction is another way to understand the meaning of that word. 
So in personal terms, it does have to do with saying, are there things in my life about which I need to change direction? Or do I need in some way to be able to think more clearly about some of the things that uh, I'm doing in my life? But there's also a word that is used for uh, repentance that occurs occasionally. Paul uh, uses it called epistrophe. It means the same thing in Greek except metanoia has to do with the resolve that you and I develop as the result of uh, our internal resolve, our thinking and reflecting and desire and decision that we want to change, we want to do something differently or we want to change direction or go in a different way. But epistrophe means all of that, but it also means that part of that is a decision to do something and put it in your hands, to, to, to express it in relationship in some way, behavior. Not just merely sort of a pious uh, idea, but that it has some, some uh, behavioral aspect to this and that you're going to actually act on the resolve that this metanoia uh, has produced in you. You know, don't think about uh, repentance just in religious terms. I bet there are a number of things in your life that you've made a decision to change direction on, big and small ways, in your work and in your relationships and so on. And there is an element of repenting of whatever it is you, you were doing and doing something in a different way. So think of it in those terms. It's not merely some exotic uh, religious idea that one day when you're more advanced, you'll be able to do it. I have a, a spiritual method that I use every day that comes from a school of a spiritual discipline called Drop the Beads right in the middle of the point. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Mike, I know. Don't worry. Uh, and it comes from a school of spiritual discipline that's uh, located in 17th century France that had a number of hair-raising schools of spiritual <laughs> discipline. This one is called the Sulpician Method. And uh, it comes uh, from a French priest named Olière and another one named Bruy, who were priests in Paris. And they were associated with a church some of you may have visited if you ever went to Paris called Saint-Sulpice. And there is a religious order of men in the Roman Catholic Church called Sulpicians, who are people who uh, mostly teach in seminaries. They have SS after their, after their name. One of the most famous ones in this country was Raymond Brown, who was the famous New Testament scholar, one of the great ones in the 20th century. In any case, the Sulpician method, uh, I have taken and brewerized it. <laughs> You know, Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So when I swing my tootsies over the gunnels in the morning, I say those three things, you know. How do I keep uh, my love for God in Christ <coughs> before me as the, the reason and the motive for doing what I'm doing? How do I hold in my heart whatever resolve that I intend to make that day 
and uh, remain in communion with the Savior? And then how do I put it in my hands? How do I uh, cooperate with this and do this? So it's pretty simple. There are other deeper things. And if you went to the, on the web and looked up Sulpician method and read through it, said, how can he be in G with this? You know, don't worry about all the details. I have distilled for you. <laughs> you know, you don't have to get into uh, any hair-raising counter-reformation piety <laughs> in order to do it wouldn't. It's not necessary. Those three things are extremely uh, good and important, and they were very, very helpful. By the way, this school of um, spiritual life is not exactly like this, but it's around the same time in history as another method called the Salesian method that comes from a, a, uh, a bishop in Geneva by the name of St. Francis de Sales. And he wrote a book called The Introduction to the Devout Life for Noble Ladies to teach them how to practice some form of spirituality. And one of the things that he uses when I connect it up to the Sulpician method is that he tells his, uh, the, the ladies that he has been instructing in the spiritual life to gather on a daily basis a spiritual nosegay. Meaning that you're walking in the garden on your walk and as you walk through the garden, you pick some flowers, don't you, you know, no, and create a little bouquet, a little nosegay, which usually was when you went by and something was unpleasant, you put it up to your nose. So it'd smell a little sweeter. But that nosegay is the uh, resolves for the day. So that when you bring it to your nose, it's your decision now to say, I'm being reminded of this. And uh, I intend to stay on track. So, this week, remember that God's mercy always trumps God's judgment. Remember that repentance is an important thing to do. And remember that repentance is not only the internal resolve, but the resolve to in some way uh, see it changed in behavior or made real in behavior. And finally, uh, keep Jesus before your eyes in adoration, Jesus in your heart in communion, and Jesus in your hands in cooperation uh, every day. Amen.